The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to John chapter 2. And the title of my message this evening is When the Wine Runs Out. Let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. It says, On the third day, so this is the third day of Jesus' ministry. On the third day, a wedding, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. <clears throat> and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. All right, so my first point as we make these introductory remarks is simply this. Jesus came to keep the party going. <laughs> so the backdrop for this story is a wedding in this place called Cana of Galilee. And he, Jesus goes there with his mother and with his six brand new disciples. Now, I'm a pastor. I go to a lot of weddings. And I, I love getting to be a part of, of so many weddings. I, I think my favorite part is to watch the bride come in. And from my unique vantage point where I stand up next to the groom, I get to see her lock eyes with him. And I always like to sneak a glance over at the groom and, and watch the expression on his face as he sees his radiant beloved walk down the aisle towards him. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. There's so much fun to be a part of. And, and I think we, we, for the most part, all like weddings. But maybe you're a bit surprised to see Jesus going to a wedding. I mean, this is one of the first things that he does after he gathers his first disciples. And perhaps you're wondering, like I did, don't they have more important things to be attending to? I mean, shouldn't they be making their way to, I don't know, the temple? Or shouldn't they be studying scripture or perhaps praying? I mean, why would Jesus take precious time from his packed schedule to attend a wedding? And we find the answer in verse 2, where we're told that Jesus went because he was invited. It's a good reason to go. But it makes this broader point. Jesus wasn't a curmudgeon. Praise the Lord for that. He wasn't a recluse. He wasn't a hermit. He was the kind of guy that people wanted to have at their parties. And I think that's telling. He was holy, as one author I read put it, but he wasn't holier than thou. He was the almighty, but he didn't act all high and mighty. You know how it is. Nobody wants to have a stick in the mud at their wedding. And the reason I'm belaboring this point is because I think, I think there's a lot of people out there who have this perception of Jesus, like he was always very stoic and serious, as though the more serious you are, the holier you are. And we can see this depicted in some of the paintings that you see of him. He always seems to have this very serious and, and somewhat distant look in his eyes, as though he can't be bothered with the things that are happening in the here and now. I don't know if those pictures do a very good job of representing who Jesus was. If you're an artist in here, here's the painting I would like to see. I want to see the painting of Jesus doubled over in laughter, because I think that might be more accurate. That'd be a great painting. And just as I said, there's a lot of people who I think have rejected Christianity principally because they think that in order to become a Christian, they have to give up everything that's fun, and you just kind of you do it. Even though you know it's not going to be fun, it's going to be a lot of hard work, but it's the price you pay to get your ticket to heaven. 
Such people equate holiness with boringness. And it's time to set the record straight. There is no commandment in scripture that says, thou shalt not have fun. If anything, Christians should be having the most fun. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. And I think one of the takeaways from this story is that Jesus came to keep the party going. Have you ever noticed how much time Jesus spent at parties? Just read through the Gospels, and you'll see it pop up over and over again. Matthew gets saved. He throws a party, and Jesus attends the party. Zacchaeus, the wee little man, gets saved. He throws a big party, invites all of his friends who were the, the, the lowest of the low on the social strata of the Israel uh, you know, social ladder. And Jesus goes to that party, too. He spent so much time at parties that he developed a reputation of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. As the location for his first miracle, Jesus chooses this wedding. And of all the things he could have compared the kingdom of God to, he chose to compare it to a feast. God likes to party. And so Jesus goes to this party. Now, on another note, I, I think it's, it's wonderful to see that this couple invited Jesus to their wedding. If you're single in here, or marriage is on your horizon, maybe you're engaged to get married. Can I just give you some great advice? Make sure you invite Jesus to your wedding. That's how you get your marriage started off on the right foot. But don't stop there. Don't just invite Jesus to the wedding. Make him the centerpiece of your marriage. That's the best marriage advice you're ever going to get. Just put Jesus in the center of your relationship, and, and the rest of everything else will work itself out. That's what this couple teaches us. Now, Jesus shows up to the wedding, and verse 3 goes on to say that when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. So the wine runs out. Everybody wants their wedding day to be perfect. They want all the details to work themselves out. I mean, this makes a lot of sense, right? It's one of the most important days of your life. A lot of money goes into it. A lot of planning goes into making sure that all of the details get worked out. And yet, I don't think I've ever been to a wedding where there wasn't at least one thing that didn't go wrong. You know, any show of hands? I mean, your wedding was perfect? I don't know. There always seems to be something, whether it's the flower girl won't walk down the aisle, or somebody's crying, or somebody forgets a line, or maybe the organist doesn't show up. It just seems to be an inevitable fact of life. And at this wedding, the wine ran out. Now, running out of wine at a party doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. But in the ancient world, it was a huge deal. You see, in Jesus' day, weddings weren't small, intimate affairs. They were extended community events. They didn't just last for a single evening, like most weddings today, but they lasted for an entire week. Hospitality ruled the day back then, and families were under significant pressure to provide lavishly for all the guests during the time that they were there. To run out of wine would have been a serious offense. It would have not only been viewed as disgraceful, but it would have cast a shadow over the family and over the young couple that was getting married. And it could even open the door to a lawsuit. <laughs> so it was costly not only socially, but also economically. But I think on another level, 
This sentence about them running out of wine, it, it speaks to us as well. You see, in the Bible, wine is often used as a symbol of joy. Let me give you an example of that. This is Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. And I'd love it if we could read these verses together out loud. It says, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. So wine, it is given one of the purposes to gladden human hearts. So in saying the wine ran out, it's akin to saying the joy ran out. By the way, that's always the way it goes in this world. The world's joy always runs out. And I wonder if I'm talking to anybody in here this evening, and that resonates with you. What are you running out of today? Is it joy? Is it hope? Is it courage? Perhaps it's patience, strength. One author I was reading put it like this. He says, there comes a point in every person's life when the wine runs out. The glass is empty. The party is over. On that day, life seems empty and dry. Nothing is growing or fermenting within us. Our world is colorless and tasteless. The bouquet of life is absent, and we are living less than fully alive. Each of us experiences that day and could probably tell a story about the day that the wine ran out for us. Maybe it was the day that you lost a loved one. Maybe the day your wine ran out was the day your husband or your wife decided to end your marriage. Maybe it was the day you lost your job. And so regardless of how you lost your joy, the question for us is, what should you do when the wine runs out? And I love Jesus' mother, Mary's example here, as she brings the problem to Jesus. She says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Now, we're not told why Mary got involved. Maybe she was a close personal friend of the couple that's getting married, or perhaps she was involved with the planning of the wedding. Maybe she was a wedding coordinator, or maybe she just felt bad because she showed up with Jesus and, and six other guys, and who knows, maybe that's why they had run out of wine. All we know for sure is that when she told Jesus about the problem, she was also asking for his help. And let me just peel back the layers here a little bit, because if you climb into to Mary's psyche here, what has she dealt with? She's dealt with 30 years of knowing who Jesus was, but essentially having to keep that secret. She knew who he was. She had experienced the visitation from the angel, but she'd also had to deal with the whispers of the community talking behind her back. Oh, Mary, you know, she got pregnant before her and Joseph got together. and She says it was the Lord, you know. And, and so she had to deal with the stigma of being branded as someone who got pregnant outside of wedlock. And so I imagine her bringing this need to Jesus with, with pain and, and a little bit of pleading in her eyes. But notice that she doesn't tell him what to do. She simply brings and reports the problem to him. This is a great way to, 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 to improve your prayer life. So often when I pray, 
I tell the Lord what the problem is, and then I give him, you know, how I think he should fix the problem. <laughs> On my best days, I might even give him three options. Lord, you could go with option A, you could go with option B, or I don't really like it, but you, go, you could go with option C. And how often does Jesus go with D? None of the above, right? <laughs> he does something completely different. But I love Mary's example. She brings the problem to the Lord and then just leaves it in his hands. So with whatever problem you're facing in your life tonight, whether it be in your relationship, whether it be in your home, whether it be at your job, bring the problem to Jesus and leave it in his hands. Author Max Lucado suggests that this may in fact be the first prayer that was ever offered to the Lord. And I love it for one simple reason. I love how simple it is. She just says, they're out of wine. It's not filled with flowery language or poetic prose. It's as simple as it is straightforward and brief. You could boil her whole prayer down to a single word, help. And I think that's one of the most powerful prayers that you could ever pray. So she brings the problem to Jesus. And then in verse 4, Jesus responds by saying, woman, <laughs> why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Is it just me, or does that sound a little harsh? I mean, ouch, right? Why does Jesus talk to his own mom like this? Well, clearly there's more going on here than what appears to be the case. For one thing, we know that Jesus wasn't telling her no. We know that because I've read the rest of the story, and we know that he goes on to do the very thing she asks him to do. And she even received it not as a rebuke because of the way that she followed up what Jesus says. So we need to look beneath the surface. And when you do that, you'll see that what at first appears to be Jesus being blunt and sharp and maybe even a bit rude, that there's something else going on. I mean, Jesus doesn't do things haphazardly. It wasn't like she asks him to get involved, and he's like, no, it's not my time, woman. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, he feels bad about it, and so decides to do something to help out his mom. No, no, no. We're talking about the greatest movement leader in the history of humanity. He doesn't do anything just willy-nilly. This was something that was planned in the annals of eternity. So if that's true, what was his response all about? And I believe the key to understanding this whole exchange lies in that little phrase where Jesus tells her, my hour hasn't yet come. Think about it like this. What does every person think about at some point when they attend a wedding? You think about your own wedding, right? If you're married, you think about your own wedding. Or if you're single, you dream about your future wedding. Jesus is a single guy at this wedding, and I believe he is thinking about the hour of his wedding. Now, the Bible uses many different metaphors to describe the relationship that God wants to have with his people. He is the king, and we're his subjects, right? He is the shepherd, and we're the sheep. He's the potter, and we're the clay. Another metaphor that gets used often throughout the scriptures is this one. He is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. So throughout the New Testament, you'll read about the church being the bride of Christ. 
And you see this scattered throughout the Old Testament as well. In particular, when you come to the book of Song of Solomon, it describes the kind of intimacy that God wants to have with his people. And there is a future hour when Jesus is going to be wed to his wife, the bride, which is the church. And we read about it in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And and here we read this scene. And again, I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband." Wow. The bride comes to her husband. Jesus is the bridegroom. And when he talks about his hour, I think he's thinking about that time when he'll finally get to come together with his bride, the church. So that's one thing he was talking about. But I I think there's something else that he was referencing here when he talks about his hour. You see, Jesus, he did everything throughout his life and in his ministry as part of this heavenly timetable. And so throughout John's gospel in particular, you'll repeatedly find Jesus talking about his hour. It's a theme that comes up again and again. On one occasion, he goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And his brothers wanted to know, are you going to reveal yourself to everyone? And he says, no, for my time has not yet come, John 7, 6. On another occasion, the religious leaders sought to arrest Jesus, but the Bible tells us they couldn't lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, John 7.30. The very same thing happens again in John 8.20, where they want to arrest Jesus but couldn't because his hour had not yet come. But then you come to John 13, which gives us a record of Jesus last night here on earth, the last night that he would spend with his disciples. And that chapter opens with these words. And I'll just read this one to you. But it says, it was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus says, now my hour has finally come. And he's sharing this well, what we know as the Last Supper with his disciples. And then at some point, he gets up from the table and he washes their feet. And then he sits back down and he takes a a piece of bread and he breaks it and he distributes it to them. And he tells them, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he lifts a cup, the cup that he describes as being the new covenant, a cup filled with wine. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the remission of sins. You see, for Jesus, the wine was a picture of his blood. And the cup, the cup represented the cup of his suffering that he knew he was going to have to endure in order that he might be united with his bride. It was something that he dreaded. Even when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled with the thought of having to drink the cup of suffering that the cross represented. Of course, it wasn't the physical suffering that Jesus recoiled from, but it was the spiritual understanding that when he went to the cross, he would be separated from his father. Someone that he had known unbroken fellowship through all eternity with. 
And so Jesus wrestled, he sweat as it were, great drops of blood. And in the end, we know that he submitted to the will and the heart of his heavenly father. And he drank from that cup. He went to the cross. He poured out his blood. And then he gave up the ghost. And then the Bible talks about how a soldier came by with a spear. And the soldier took the spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. And it went up under his ribcage and into his heart. And the Bible says this, out of his side gushed water and blood. Water and blood. What does this story center around? The water turned into wine. Where does the water become new life for us but at the cross of Jesus Christ? So Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And I think he has all of that in his heart when he says that. And here's his mother's response, and it's curious. She says to the servants who are standing around just eavesdropping on this conversation, she says, do whatever he says. Oh, this is great advice. This story is just chock full of great advice. When the wine runs out, you bring the problem to Jesus and then do whatever he says to do. Let me shoot straight with you. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to see water turned into wine? Do you want to experience miracles? Do you want your relationships to thrive? Do you want to see heaven come down and manifest itself here on earth? Then simply do whatever Jesus tells you to do, regardless of whether or not it makes sense, regardless of if you feel like it's a big thing or a small thing. Just do what he says. And so often, I find that we're willing to do just about everything outside of obey. We'll read the Bible more. We'll pray more. We'll worship more. We'll give more. We'll serve more. But really, at the end of the day, you know what God wants from us? Our obedience. Just do what he says. There's this story in the Old Testament, Testament of Saul, King Saul, and God had called him to destroy, to completely destroy the Amalekites and not to leave anything alive. But instead of fully obeying the Lord, Saul leaves some of the best of the flocks and the herds alive. And then Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and he asks him why he didn't obey the Lord. And Saul responds, well, you know, I kind of gets caught. And he says, well, I, I kept these alive because I want to sacrifice them. Yeah, that's it. I want to sacrifice them to the Lord. And here was Samuel's response to Saul. And again, let's read this one together out loud. He said this, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. To obey. This is what the Lord wants from us. And so his mom says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, nearby, verse 6, stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. 
Man, I love the wholehearted response of these servants to Jesus' command. They didn't just sort of obey Jesus' command. No, when he told them to to fill the water pots, it says that they filled the pots to the brim. That's wholehearted obedience. That's the kind of obedience that Jesus is looking for and the kind that I was trying to describe for you. I mean, these were large, as it says, ceremonial washing pots that would be used in the ceremonial cleansing of hands before people could worship God. Each one of them held about 30 gallons, and there were six of them, which means we're talking about 180 gallons of water. Now, each gallon weighs about eight pounds. Who knows how far these guys had to go to draw water from the well and bring the bucket back to the, gal- uh, the, 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 the washing pot and dump it in. How much time did that take? Who knows how far away the well was that they had to carry the water from? And yet they obeyed. They did it. We don't read about them complaining either. They did it even though they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know what he was planning to do. I mean, they could have just gotten by with, you know, a little bit. We filled them up halfway, or we filled them up two-thirds. But if they had done that, then they might have missed out on, I don't know, 50, 60 gallons of a miracle. Instead, they chose to do what all good servants do. They obeyed the Lord's word with all of their hearts. Now, at some point, the water turns to wine. We're not exactly told when that happens. Was it you know, right there as they poured it in? Or, or was it after he dipped some of the water and as he's carrying it to the master of the feast? I mean, where does that happen? All we know is that sometime God turned the H2O into Merlot. <laughs> Notice how verse 9 says that the master of the banquet didn't realize where the wine had come from, but the servants did. Here's the application for us. When we serve with a fill-it-to-the-brim kind of spirit, we get inside experience on miracles that others don't get to see. In the kingdom of God, that's always the way it works. The ones who serve with all of their hearts quietly behind the scenes, they're the ones who get to see the most miracles. And I'm thinking, imagine the conversations that those servants had later that evening when they got home from work and their wife or their spouse asked them, did anything interesting happen at work today? They said, oh, do I have a story for you. Imagine in the years to come as they follow Jesus' ministry, as they perhaps hear about the crucifixion, and then they experience the resurrection, and then as they're old men and women, they're sitting around the table with their grandkids, and they're telling them, I was there at the wedding in Cana. I filled the water pots. I filled them to the brim. And Jesus, I don't know how he did it, but he turned the water into wine. Powerful. Beautiful. Verse 11 goes on to say this, and we'll end here. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice how John says this was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Jesus is going to, there are seven signs that we're going to read about, seven miracle stories that John is going to highlight for us, and this is the first one. Now, a sign, of course, is something that points to something beyond itself, something greater than itself. And I think Jesus is telling us something important here. What is the sign? What is the message in the miracle? There are two. 
Number one, Jesus is telling us about who he is. This miracle reveals for us what kind of savior we have, what kind of God we worship and serve. He's the true master of the feast. I mean, the master of this feast, we might call him the, 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 the leader, if you will, the toastmaster. He failed to do his job. He didn't even know that the wine had run out. But then Jesus steps in, and he saves the day, and he keeps the party going. And this is who our God is. He's the master of the ceremonies. But he's also the bridegroom who paid the highest price to win our hearts. And he demonstrated his love for us when he went to the cross in our place and on our behalf. So this, this story tells us who he is. But it also highlights for us what he came to do. What did Jesus come to do? He came to bring fullness where there was emptiness. He came to bring joy where there was disappointment. And he came to bring something internal and exchange that for that which was only external. And we see this in the picture that is displayed through these six water pots. Six is the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. It's also the number of incompleteness. Seven is the number of perfection. It's the day on which God rested. And so six is the number of man. And the fact that there were six stone water pots pictures not only humanity, but the hardness of heart that is indicative of humanity. We're bone, born with stones in our heart, as it were. And that's how many of us feel. There's an emptiness that we fight against. But then Jesus comes, and he fills the empty vessel with his resurrection life. And that vessel is transformed by his blood into something brand new. He takes our heart of stone, and he replaces it with a soft flesh upon which he can inscribe his will. This is what Jesus came to do. He makes all things brand new. And maybe you're here tonight, and you're in need of new life. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus can fill your emptiness. He can take your heart of stone and rip it out, and he can replace it with something brand new. If any man is in Christ, the Bible says, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. Something else we learn from this story is this. The world's joy always runs out, and it can't be regained. We talked about this earlier. But the joy that Jesus gives is forever new and ever satisfying. Remember Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well? If you drink from this well, you're going to thirst again. But whoever comes to me and drinks, man, you'll, you'll be satisfied from the inside out. Jesus always provides more than enough. He always saves the best for last. The world offers the best first. And then once you're hooked, it shows its true colors and things start to get worse. But with God, the opposite is true. He brings us from glory to glory, from faith to faith, and from grace to grace. In the kingdom of God, the best is always yet to come. I love the way that Proverbs 4.18 puts it. It says this, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. And then the last point I'll make with you this evening before we close in prayer is this. Jesus always saves his best for last. I love that line there in verse 10, where the master of ceremonies said, you have saved the best 
till now. And he doesn't just give us a little bit, man. He gives us 180 gallons, which equates to about 800 bottles of wine. Jesus always goes above and beyond. He came so that we might have life, but that we might have life in abundance, John 10.10. The enemy comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. And perhaps you're here this evening and you're like those stone water pots. You feel empty on the inside. You might have it all going on on the outside. And you might be in the middle of a party, but at the, the, the darkest hours of the night, when you're alone with your thoughts on your pillow, you know that you're empty on the inside. Jesus wants to fill you. He wants to renew you. He wants to remove your sins. He wants to remove your guilt and shame. He wants to make you new in Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is so rich. It is a fountain of living water. Father, we thank you for this story and what it tells us about you, that you're the God who comes to keep the party going. You're not a stick in the mud. In truth, it's the enemy who promises joy, but really all he can deliver is pain. He promises pleasure, but he can't fulfill that promise. And once the hook gets set, we find ourselves on the end dangling by a rope, destitute, without hope, lost and forlorn. Jesus, I pray that you would move right now by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would breathe fresh life into my brothers and sisters. And perhaps you're here this evening, and this is your moment. Everything that we've done so far is, is about you. And Jesus is on one knee, and he's asking if you'll take his hand. He wants to become the lover of your soul. He wants to provide for you. He wants to show you the depths of his love. But he won't force himself on you. He stands at the door and he knocks. So that if any man hears his voice and opens the door, he will come in and he will fellowship in that house. And your mourning can be turned into dancing. If that's the desire of your heart, you want Jesus in your life, let me just invite you to repeat this prayer after me. And we're just going to invite Jesus to come and do what he promises to do. And for all of those of you in here who know and love the Lord, let me invite you to say this prayer out loud as well as a way of reaffirming your vows, your commitment, your love of Jesus. Just say out loud, say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. I receive the gift of salvation. Thank you for taking my place on the cross and bearing my sin. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live for you all the days of my life till I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.